Brother Ken Smith is to bring us the message uh, this evening, and his subject is uh, Seeing the Invisible God. And he has asked that we consider from the Gospel of John, the first chapter and the first 34 verses, this connection with the invisible God, same invisible God, John 1 and the first 34 verses, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. The same came for witness, to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. <clears throat> that was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. <clears throat> he came into his own, and his own received him. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and was among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, this was he of whom I speak, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received, and, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And this is the record of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art this? Art thou? And he confessed, and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou alive? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou, that we may give an answer to them that sent us? What sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with mortal, but thou standest one among you, whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, 
whose shoes latch it, I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth, Beth Bear, uh, with John Jordan, and where John was baptized. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. And I ask you undivided attention to the message of brother. Dear brother, in the 18th verse of the chapter just read, we have the statement made that no man has seen God at any time. Now this, scripturally speaking, is an incontrovertible fact. But it is a fact, nevertheless, that doesn't please very well the vanity of man. From the time when Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden down to the present, there exists a deep down inside urge in man to somehow find a way back to the close relationship with God that was lost through sin. This fact is certainly not admitted by mankind, but nonetheless, this forms one of his basic motiva motivations. We can see the evidence of this in man's preoccupation with science, for example. His efforts to uh, uh, modify his environment uh, through science to uh, accomplish all kinds of marvelous things in his own eyes. These are all basically his efforts uh, to counteract the effects of his expulsion from Eden. I say he doesn't recognize these things, but that's what they are nevertheless. And even when he does recognize the existence of God, he still seems to want to meet God face to face, so to speak, and to deal with him on equal terms. There's a colossal vanity in man that seems to lead him to, to do these things. So then he turns to seeking to find God in nature. He only could come to understand the things he sees around him. Then perhaps he can, can see God. In pursuit of this, he uh, peers into the innermost structures of matter, trying to find out what everything is composed of. Or he takes a telescope and he gazes up into the heavens to see that if perhaps he can see way out to the furthest limits of the universe. In all of this, he is seeking his own answer to the great mystery of godliness, and he finds none. The reason he finds none is because his eyes are blinded by vanity and his ears are gross through lust. And unless man 
can have the correct moral approach to his problems in the eyes of God, then he is prevented entirely from getting a glimpse of that which he is searching for, and certainly is prevented from, by his own efforts, uh, returning to the Garden of Eden uh, from whence he was expelled. Now, we who know the truth from the Holy Scriptures are not deceived by all these frantic, vain pursuits. Nevertheless, we too long for a sight of the invisible God, and there's no reason why we shouldn't. In fact, we probably long for the sight of the invisible God more than do the people of the world, because we have a little idea of what is in store for those who end up being able to see him face to face. But nevertheless, we can with patience wait for it, because we know from the scriptures that in the fullness of time we shall see him face to face. We are assured of that if we prevail. In the meantime, in this present existence, we recognize the fact that God is too pure for mortal sight, and as long as we are burdened by this mortality, we cannot commune directly with him. Let's turn in reference to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter, verses 11 to 16. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things, and before Jesus Christ, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his time he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And also in the book of Colossians, the first chapter, verses 12 to 15. giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. This uh, position of man in relation to God and his need for an intercessor in the person of Jesus Christ is very clearly stated in the Holy Scriptures. In fact, one of the most important benefits to be gained from studying the Word of God, aside from the perhaps more obvious ones, but one of the principal ones is that by this means we become aware of what we really are, a frail and fallible vessel a creature separated from its maker by the gulf of sin, a creature doomed to eternal death unless he can in some way find reconciliation with God. 
This understanding of man's essential mortality is the first lesson that a man must learn and feel, particularly feel, I believe, before he can begin the long road toward the goal of the stature and fullness of Christ. I might direct those thoughts to the younger among us. We must recognize in ourselves, and this is hard for young people to do because young people really think that they're going to live forever, I believe, from the way they behave, but we must recognize the frail mortality that we have and feel it deep down inside us, and then we can begin to appreciate the love of God for us. Now, an excellent illustration of this barrier that exists between God and man is seen in the experience of Moses on the mount. Now, this man, Moses, <clears throat> was in a very unique position among all mankind, in this sense that he seemed to enjoy a closer relationship with God in direct dealings than other people uh, have shown throughout the rest of the scriptures. I think this is because uh, he is fulfilling a type of Christ in that, showing the relationship that existed between God and his son. But we see Moses standing in a very privileged position in the eyes of God, in a very special relationship, as we see in Exodus 33, verses 7 to 11. And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, afar off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out unto the tabernacle of the congregation, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out of the tabernacle, that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass, as Moses entered the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose up and worshipped, every man at his tent door. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. The Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh to his friend. If this is not a unique position, I don't know what would constitute it. Nevertheless, uh, this face to face speaking with God that Moses enjoyed is still not the seeing of God that we are seeking for. This is illustrated, I think, in verses 15 uh, to 33. Uh, where Moses said, and, or rather God said, and he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up thence. For therein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight. Is it not that thou goest with, goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and my people, from all the people that are on the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. Another indication of Moses' special position. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. 
And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy upon whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So we see then that the face-to-face speaking that Moses made, uh, had to do with God in the tabernacle was with the angel of God and does not indicate that he, as a mortal man, could see God face-to-face. Even in, his, uh, even in such an acceptable position that he was in, man, including Moses, is still unable to go beyond the barriers of his mortality and to commune with God on an equal level. Now when we come down to the people, to the Jewish people, they were in an even worse position than Moses in this respect. Not only could they not look upon God, they couldn't even look at Moses because of what he had seen. Let's uh, see in Exodus 34, verses 29 to 35. And it came to pass, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand, when he came down from the mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone, and Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now this veil over Moses' face was a type, showing that mankind is separated from free communion with God because of sin. This veil over Moses' face represents sinful flesh with all its weaknesses. Now the Bible tells us of another veil, serving the same purpose and teaching the same lesson in a larger form. I'm referring then to the veil separating the holy and most holy places in the tabernacle. Just briefly to to review, we're all I'm sure familiar with this, but the tabernacle was divided into two sections by the veil. The first, the holy, contained the candlestick and various other articles of furniture representing the uh, Jewish community in certain representations. And the inner, the most holy, uh, containing the ark, the mercy seat, the overshadowing cherubim and so on, uh, Aaron's rod that budded in the ark and the pot of manna, these things uh, representing another state. The holy state on the one side would then represent man in his mortal relationships and covenant relationship with God, the most holy place representing that state beyond the veil of immortality uh, and the things which uh, are 
representative of the direct communion with the very presence of God. Now this veil that we're considering forms the division between these two chambers. In fact, the only reason why there are two chambers is because of this veil. That is, it was one room, uh, one long rectangular room, except for that veil. It formed the only division between these two states, and there's probably a significance in that if we think about it, uh, that the holy and the most holy are really all one thing except for the barrier of that veil. Now the effect of that veil was that it sealed off and concealed from mortal eyes the most holy place. It was then to shield from mortal eyes the manifested glory of God dwelling between the cherubim. Just as Moses' veil kept the children of Israel from looking at the effects of that glory in the face of Moses, so the veil in the temple kept them from beholding the glory of God in a direct sense. There was also a second purpose served by this veil. It prevented on pain of death entrance to the Most Holy. I mean, seeing is one thing and entering is another. This veil also kept everybody except the high priest on that one day from entering that holy place. And there again, this is the same thing that prevents our access to the antitypical holy place. That is, the veil representing sinful flesh is the barrier that prevents us from going from the one state into the other. As long as sin's flesh is there intact, then the access to that area beyond is sealed off. The veil has that purpose as a seal to prevent entry into the other chamber. And through that, there is the consequent inability to approach God directly. Or to put it in another way, mortal nature cannot, by its very nature, operate on the same plane as the eternal. It cannot do so for many reasons. Not the least of which is that the very nature of God is too pure to associate directly with sin. There must be a change made in the one before it can associate with the other. So the veil then stands for sin's flesh, as inherited from our forefather Adam. I don't want to be misquoted on that. This has nothing to do with the saying of some that we inherit Adam's sin or some such statement. I'm talking now about the nature which we inherit by descent from Adam, we being in the loins of Adam when he sinned. We are then like nature with him. But this veil was not just any man's flesh, not just sin's flesh in general. It specifically stands for this weak, corruptible flesh as it was possessed by Jesus Christ during the days of his ministry. Let's look at Hebrews 10 for that. Verses 19 to 20. <clears throat> Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a, new, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. There couldn't be anything plainer than that. Through the veil, that is 
to say, his flesh. And also in Matthew, the 27th chapter, verses 50 to 51. And when Jesus had cried again with a loud voice, yielding up the spirit, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. This is a literal representation of the actual veil being rent to show the fulfillment of those words of Hebrew that a new and living way was opened up uh, through his flesh. So we ask then, why was it necessary that the veil of his flesh should be rent in such a shameful and painful manner. I don't think we can really visualize in today's day and age what being crucified really meant. Not only the pain, but the most disgraceful death that could be imagined. Why was it necessary to, to do such a thing? Why wouldn't it simply be enough, as you might say, to pay the penalty for, uh, for Adam's condemnation by merely dying? Uh, why Why not? Especially in the fact that we realize that Christ did no sin. He, he never sinned. There was no moral reason why uh, he should remain in the grave. Why not just just die? You know, why all this uh, terrible thing that, that had to be done in literally rending his flesh in this way? Well, we know that this would not suffice. Because this isn't a matter in any sense of paying a debt owed to God. That isn't the case. But rather, this is a vindication of God's righteousness through sacrifice. Access to that inner chamber depends upon this public declaration of the principles of righteousness which God hath decreed, and God has decreed that the penalty for sin is not only just death, but a sacrificial death of the sort that we have uh, described, and is showing that he is his right to require this as uh, a propitiation for sin. Right, so that's not the main subject of my lecture. I don't want to get into that too much. But we who are through these things, through having had this way prepared for us and having entered into it, we who are in covenant relationship with God are standing in the antitypical holy place as represented by that first chamber. We are antitypical common priests who minister in the holy place but who cannot go beyond the veil. We are in a much better position in this respect than those who stand outside gazing vainly into the heavens and longing for the sight of the invisible God. But it is still, comparatively, a very sorry state when we consider the glory to be revealed if we, through the grace of God, are permitted to follow Christ through that torn veil into the realms of the spirits that lie beyond. Nevertheless, for the present, we groan with Paul over the frailties of the flesh, as he writes in Romans 7, verses 18 to 25. <clears throat> for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. 
Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, in which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Now Paul didn't mean that he was serving sin there, but as long as we are burdened with this flesh, we are distinctly under the law of sin in that respect that he meant. That is, that we are burdened by its effects. And he's a continual wrestling with those things all our lives. So we are in the position of reconciliation in the holy place, but still burdened with this uh, sin, sin flesh. Now, as long as the tabernacle had standing, the veil was there hanging as a constant reminder of this mortality of man, a constant reminder of his sinful nature and his uh, being barred by it from the sight of the glory beyond. But when that veil was rent because of Christ's death, then was provided access to the hidden manna that was there typically uh, in the ark in that pot. There was one of the things that I mentioned before in the ark, a pot of manna saved from their uh, journey in the wilderness, collected and placed in there as a symbol of God's saving of their life through the giving of the manna. This manna typified the greater gift of life through the power of the Holy Spirit, even eternal life, the change to incorruptible glory. So when we have the veil rent, then we have access, the way open, to the partaking of that greater manna, even eternal life. Now our great high priest, Jesus Christ, has walked through that torn veil of his flesh, and he has first tasted of the hidden manna. He has tasted, and he has been a figure turned and beckoned us to follow him. We too must come through the torn veil by partaking of his sacrifice. And the tearing of our flesh serves nothing, but we must partake of his sacrifice and, in so doing, being invested with the righteousness which he has won by that sacrifice. We need only to voluntarily enter and follow the path which he has blazed, so to speak, before us. These thoughts are beautifully expressed in the second chapter of Ephesians. I'd like to read that whole chapter. <clears throat> And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sin, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. 
For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore remember, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hand, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. I think I'll just repeat that first. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now there, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the buildings fitly framed together grow up unto one holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. And also, just a few words in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, verses 50 to 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The labor of the world is certainly in vain, but we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord because of what has been done really for us. This, then, is the revelation of God to man. This is the revelation in the face of Moses that caused it to shine with that unbearable light. It is the revelation of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It is the revelation of the holy place and its furniture. Finally, it is the theme of the Apocalypse, which tells us of the final events in God's great plan, which brings his creation to the final development of his glory. And I'd just like to conclude with those familiar works in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 7. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, 
For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. He said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. He said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Then, when that condition comes to be, then this weak veil of the flesh that has been torn will be gone in its entirety, completely have disappeared, and all flesh then will know God even as now we are known.